Genesis chapter 39, where we read, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Now the Lord was with Joseph. Yahweh was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his, of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And Potiphar made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge He is not greater in his house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I, that I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me, and he fled, and he got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as Potiphar, his master, heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But Yahweh was with Joseph and showed him chesed, showed him steadfast love, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. I came across this week a a Jewish legend In this Jewish legend, Potiphar's wife, they actually give her a name. They name her Zuleika. Zuleika is quite the name there. But Zuleika, 
uh, all of her aristocratic Egyptian lady friends mock her mercilessly because of this infatuation that she she shows this attention that she pays to this measly Jewish slave boy. So one day, Zuleika invites all of her circle of friends over to her home. She gives them all oranges to peel and knives with which to peel them. And they sit down and they begin to chat. And you know, instead of crocheting together, they're peeling oranges together. And while they're busily engaged in this task, she Potiphar has, Potiphar's wife has Joseph Joseph walk through the room. And the story goes, the ladies are so distracted by Joseph's handsome appearance that each one of them accidentally cuts themselves. And the blood begins to flow. The blood begins to cover their garments. And then that's when Zuleika says, she says these words, here is what I have to endure every single day. And from that moment forward, the women never mock her again. You say, huh, was he really that attractive? It says that he was handsome in form and appearance. And we don't know how, how truly handsome Joseph was, and neither do we know how beautiful she was. But we can assume, I mean, given the prominence that Potiphar had, he's obviously... He's, what, the captain of the guard. He, he has a significant position in, in the government. You would think that he probably had the pick of beautiful Egyptian women. You can imagine, it, it's not too difficult to imagine that this was a, a fair and beautiful woman that was making advances. Joseph, remember last week, Joseph was thrown into a pit in that pit was sort of a picture of the grave. He was cast into Sheol, and then he was sold into slavery and brought down into Egypt. And, his, you know, life doesn't get a lot worse than, than being sold into slavery by your own flesh and blood. But here we get to the chapter 39, and things are going relatively well for Joseph. I mean, this is a period uh, of relative success and prosperity. He's been made... I guess what you would say, the, the chief operating officer of this large and prominent household in, in Egypt. Yahweh is prospering his labor. Everything Je Joseph touches turns to gold. It's, it's a season of relative success in his life. And that's when the temptation comes. Isn't that interesting? How frequently it is a season of, things are starting to go pretty well for us, and temptation hounds him. Did you notice the phrase, day after day, day after day, she asked him to sleep with, with me, day after day. Joseph is probably, you know, 18 years old, 19, early 20s. He's at the peak of his sexual appetite. Uh, he's... He's in a job that oftentimes slaves were expected to perform sexual favors for their masters. And um, she, she's attractive, and she's relentless. And if you know anything about the male ego, I mean, to be, to be pursued like this, no matter if, even if she was a hag, to have somebody pursue you this, this feverishly, it had to be rather flattering. Joseph had to have had plenty of good reasons to succumb. So how does he, 
How does he pull through? How does he pull through? You know, remember when Jesus was being tempted 40 days in the wilderness? How did he pull through? He, at that time, he quoted the book of Deuteronomy back to, God, back to the devil. He said, here's scripture that I memorized. He quotes the scriptures back to him, and then the devil flees from him. Well, well Joseph doesn't do that, but how does he pull through what had to have been the, the greatest temptation of his life? Several things. First, look with me, verse 9 verse 9, he says, near the end of the sentence, uh, the second sentence there, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Number one, he calls it wicked. It's wicked. How often, we don't use that word very often, do we, when it comes to our temptations. But it's, it's wicked. It's a wicked thing that you're asking me to do. The devil was saying, in effect, it's a lonely thing. You're lonely. You are young. You, uh, you have sexual appetite. You have virility. And what? Joseph has the courage to, to say no. Um, there, I believe there is something truly powerful about... about uh, naming something as wicked, <laughs> as strange as that may sound, there, there's something very clarifying about naming things rightly. Maybe part of the challenge of life is to call things w- truly and accurately what they really are. Of course, temptation, when it comes to us, it's n- it always is ma- masquerading under a false name. Um, but no, this is wicked. He does acknowledge there, I think in verse verse 8, he acknowledges the harm that it will have on other people. He says, this will harm Potiphar. How could I, how could I do this to my master who's been so good to me? But, but Joseph mostly speaks in terms, just like David did when he sinned with Bathsheba. Remember Psalm 51, against you, Lord, you have I sinned. How can I do this wicked thing against the Lord, he says. Um, it would be against Yahweh, and it would be it would be terrible. So that's number one. Secondly, I found this very interesting. Again, if you look at the first sentence of verse nine, and back at verse nine, he says that my master has not kept back anything from me except you. My master has given me pretty much free run of the house. And I can eat anything that's on the table. I can do anything that I want to. I can, uh, I can eat from any tree in my master's garden. I can. Does that does that does that ring a bell? It reminds us of the Garden of Eden. I'm able. The tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. The Lord said to Adam, You may eat from any bush in this garden. You can play anywhere in this garden. You can eat from any tree in this garden. I give you all of the garden, just not this. This is the one thing that is off limits. And, and here we have, that's what Joseph is saying. There is, there is one thing that's off limits to me, and that is her. It's a mini Garden of Eden. Potiphar's wife is is Joseph's tree of knowledge that's prohibited. And it sounds like he sees things as such. 
If he were to eat of the fruit of that tree, I'm sure that it would have been very pleasurable fruit. Uh, It would have been pleasant to taste, but it would have been fruit that leads to death. And lo and behold, when he runs from his her arms, little does he realize that he's running toward life, and he's running toward a throne eventually, and he's running toward the saving of of many, many lives, many others. So that's number two. Number three, it's one of those old adages. You've heard this said before. The test of a person's character, the test of a person's character is what he or she would do if they know that they'll never be found out. The test of a person's character is if you know that you'll never get caught. Nobody will ever see. Nobody nobody will ever find out. You'll get away with it scot-free. How then do you live? Of course, for us as Christians, we, we realize that somebody always sees. <laughs> like, you never give... There's always someone who's, who's going to catch us. And so for us to, to do something sort of in the dark, so clandestine that we think that it'll never be found out is, eff- is effectively to live like an atheist. So that's a test of personal care. The other old adage, second one, find this interesting. Your strongest moral beliefs will diminish and maybe even disappear altogether if you, proc- if you procrastinate acting on them. Moral procrastination. Moral procrastination has a way of taking something that we're truly gripped by and convicted of, that we know for certain about, and if you wait upon that... <laughs> That instinct, that conviction, eventually it weakens the whole to such an extent that it's not there anymore. And this is true not only of sexual temptation. You may feel very strongly that you ought to be generous in a given situation. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're supposed to give to that missionary or or make some kind of financial sacrifice And the longer you wait, if you push it over into next week, the less likely you are to follow through. In Joseph's case, it's clear, right, that if he were to have sat down and had appetizers with her, a little casual conversation, he never would have made it out of that room alive. If he shared a drink with with Zuleika, his resolve would would have been gone by the end. There's always a little voice inside our souls that says, stop it. Now, you've got to stop it. Uh, She's off limits. This is wicked. And then there's always, always another little voice inside which says, are you really sure? Why rush? You've got time to think this over. And the time to think this over is almost always the time to rationalize your disobedience into action. That's number three. Fourthly, profound little statement we find in verse 10, where we read, uh, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, just to lie beside her, or even to be with her. 
he would not, he refused to be with her. Well, how did that ha- how, did, how do you do that in a small house when everybody's living under the same roof? He changed the pattern of his day in order that he would never be around her. He knew that he wasn't safe to be around her. And, I mean, he, he completely reordered his schedule to reflect that. Imagine, okay, funny little story. You may not find it too funny, but humor me. Imagine someone whose weakness is eating donuts. His doctor comes to him and tells him, for the sake of your health, no more donuts. He vows to God, I swear, no more donuts. He promises to his family, no mas, (laughs) no mas donuts. He calls to the church and he gets on the prayer chain, you know, deliver me from the temptation of donuts. You you find a guy like that, he sounds like he means business. He sounds like he's, he's serious about this. But what does he do if he's a lot like the rest of us? He doesn't change the pattern of his life. He goes right on reading articles on the internet about donuts. He, he downloads donut music on <laughs> iTunes. Watches donut documentaries, right? He spends his time with other donut lovers talking about donuts joking about donuts at the office where he often glances at donut calendars hanging on the wall. (laughs) It's not long before he's driving to work the long way, and that way just happens to go buy a donut shop. Pretty soon he's buying his morning paper from the rack right outside the donut shop, and he's glancing inside its windows, and he's lingering just long enough that he can inhale the smell from, from outside. Now, this is a man who I have no doubt was entirely sincere. That he, he, was, he, didn't, he was not, he had no intention of breaking his vows. And you can almost imagine his sad lament afterwards. Oh, what went wrong? I prayed. I asked others to pray. I asked God for deliverance. You know, look what happens when you try and do your best. Your best isn't good enough. I quit. I mean, it's a silly story, but those are the types of actually stories that the book of Proverbs kind of gives us. And the, the message being that, you know, you quit on day one. <laughs> Proverbs 4.14, Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and go on your way. Proverbs 5.8, Keep a path far from her door. Do not go near the door of her house. Fifthly, finally, lastly, there are, there are going to be special kind of unique situations where um, all of your support networks are, the normal support networks are gone. You can think of lots of examples of this. It could be a, a post-graduation party. It might be an office party. It may be a business trip abroad. It may Rico Tice, who is the author of Christianity Explored over in Great Britain, great, great uh, evangelistic tool. He 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 said he made this point. I thought it was a great point that although the passage never says anything about alcohol, it's amazing how many how many real life situations, the extraordinary situations, 
always revolve around alcohol and stupidity with alcohol. It's not there, but we know it to be the case. Verse 12, she, we read, she uh, caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Now the Hebrew there doesn't, the, the word for garment is not an outer cloak. It's not a coat. It is an inner an, an inner garment. She grabs his inner garment. And when he flees, it means that he either fled nearly naked or he fled completely naked, which had to be rather embarrassing. Running off naked like a coward is a really good idea. Paul says to Timothy, flee youthful lusts. Flee, flee, run, run for your life. Flee, run. Uh, Run from sex outside of marriage because it will hurt you. It will hurt them. It doesn't matter that everyone else out there is having non-marital sex. It's not God's design. God created a moral order in this universe, and when you go against that, the, the moral laws, you're the one that gets broken by them. It will hurt, and it will hurt them. You are, you are to flee youthful lust. Flee because the person you are dating may not end up being your spouse, and if they don't end up being your spouse, then the person you're out on Friday night with happens to be somebody else's spouse. And what that means is that uh, your future husband or wife, they're probably out with somebody on Friday night who, that they're going to be your spouse. But wouldn't you want to treat your date the way that you'd want some other guy or girl to treat your husband or your wife of the future? And you get out of there. Absolutely run in special situations, especially when alcohol and stupidity is involved. Situations that are outside of your control. And it will look embarrassing. It's curious, because, I mean, he ran off and had to look like an absolute fool, naked like that. And it will be embarrassing. And it saved his life. The fact of the matter is nobody can remember 10 things at one time. You know, in moments of high stress or high temptation, you can't remember 10 things at once. But if you can remember just one thing in the moment of trial, just one true thing, remember that the Lord provides a way of escape. Uh, most of us don't believe that he really, that there really is a way of escape, but that's what you're asking for effectively in the Lord's Prayer, in the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. If you ask him to deliver you from, from evil and from the evil one, he will. He does. There is a door of escape somewhere. And it doesn't matter that you say that you're already at the club or you're already, you're already on the, logged onto the internet, or you're already in pretty deep into this conversation, you're already halfway there. It, that doesn't matter. So what? Run. Run for the door of opportunity that I guarantee you the Lord will provide. It would be nice if 
the, if this story went in a different direction, it would be very nice if, if a concentrated effort toward purity and godliness would lead Joseph into this life of happiness and prosperity and tranquility. And, it, it, you know, he pays a very heavy price for being godly. Very heavy price. I mean, she accuses him of attempted rape. But God was still taking care of Joseph. Verse 20, where we read that Joseph was thrown into... And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And there he was in prison. You say, God's taking care of him when he's doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Because as far as Egyptian prison conditions go, you know, the king's prison is, is a pretty posh place. <laughs> you know, life, is, life could be a whole lot worse than, than the Pharaoh's prison, which we'll read about in the uh, next couple of chapters. And remember, he's an, he is a convicted rapist. If you're a slave rapist, uh, what, should, what do you expect the sentence to be? You know, torture and execution. But no, Yahweh is with him. That's the phrase that gets repeated. It bookends the beginning and the end of the chapter. Yahweh was with him. Yahweh was with him. The Lord was with him. You will be lonely. You will be tempted but I will be with you. You will be faithful in the time of trial and you will suffer a grave personal injustice. And with it will come terrible sadness and loneliness, but I will be with you. Eventually, your trials are going to lead to the salvation of, we talked about it last week, tens of thousands of people, including your father and your brothers, because I am with you. Uh, Your people will become slaves in Egypt, just like you, but I will lead them out and I will give them the land that I have promised to your forefather Abraham and eventually from them will come the, come the promised Messiah. If God had told had, had told Joseph, have I been saying Jacob through? Okay, good, because that's easy to do. <laughs> If God had told Joseph at the beginning of the entire ordeal, here's the deal, 20 years, it's going to be rough, but in the end, it's going to be for the salvation of many people. Does Joseph Joseph make that arrangement? Does Does he cut that deal? Of course he would, and you would too. But he doesn't get that piece of information at the beginning of the story, and neither do you. And... It takes 20 years, as we said last week, 20 years where he doesn't feel like God is there and God is is with him. Um, Isn't it fascinating? Who is the slave in this passage? He, on the outside, looks like a slave. And Christ has made him free. And she, Zuleika, looks like she's free, but really she is a slave. Joseph is the free man. You know, it's interesting that every piece of popular culture, nearly every piece out there, talks to us 
um, and tells us just how repressive our sexual ethic, the Christian sexual ethic is, this whole monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong commitment, sex within those bounds, uh, a union uh, of, of um, a financial union, a domestic union, we live under the same house, a legal union, we have all the same obligations of physical union. They, just, they tell us repeatedly how poor, repressed Christians are in our sexual ethic. But Jesus Christ has set Joseph free. She's the one that's enslaved. You notice how it escalates to the point. Her, her slavery is so great, it's a fatal attraction. She effectively says that if I, if I can't have you, then nobody shall have you. She, she was effectively tr- putting it, trying to put him to, to death. But Joseph was free because Christ had delivered his life. You, and Paul says that. Romans 6.15 What then? Are we to sin because we are, we are not under the law, but we are now under grace? No, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to, any, to anyone, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either a slave to sin, which leads to death, Uh, or uh, a slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, but you have become obedient from the heart to my teaching, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Two final things. First, it can be very discouraging reading a passage like this, because you see Joseph and and his great triumph, and then you see yourself, and, and, and probably you may see a great deal of your own sexual failures. That's one of the things that every one of us probably in this room have in common is that that we are sexual, um, we're all sexual sinners. Uh, And many of us feel very impure about our past, defiled, filthy by our, our sexual past. The very first thing I would say to you is that Jesus Christ loves you. He's not... He's not sickened by by your abuse of sexuality. You look and you see uh, some of the people who were most embraced and claimed by Jesus were those with a sordid sexual history. Think of the woman who comes and she wets his feet with her tears and 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 washes her feet his feet with with her hair and and he embraces her and loves her and in a context at a at a very formal meal where that it was very uncouth for him to do so he embraces her you look at the people who had terrible sexual histories in the bible tamar who suffered incest rahab who was a prostitute church tradition holds that mary magdalene was was among the prostitutes um all the people in the church of Corinth. Paul says that, that some of you were prostitutes. Some of you were slave concubines. But you have been washed by Jesus. You have been sanctified. You have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he loves you. And, you, and he claims you. And you are his. So remember the gospel. It's the first thing I would say. The second thing is... And then use every, every last ounce of effort uh, in, your, in yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit. E- use every fiber of muscle and 
and strengthen your body to live as, a, as the free man or woman that you are in Christ. Um, because you are free. You're not enslaved. It feels like we're still enslaved, especially if we have if we have, um, we're just so accustomed to our old master yelling, get over here, boy. And we, we just, okay. You know, we're led along like a, a dog on a leash. But no. Um, C.S. Lewis probably has the most consoling words on, on this topic taken from mere Christianity. Most consoling words on chastity and purity. He says, quote, we may indeed be sure that perfect chastity will not be attained by any merely human efforts. Of course, you must ask for God's help and and rely upon God's help. And even when you have done so, it may seem to you for a long time that no help or less help than you need is being given. Well, never mind that. After each failure, ask his forgiveness and pick yourself up and and go again. There's, there's no magic formula. Ask for forgiveness. Pick yourself up. Try again. Very often what God first helps us towards is not the virtue itself, but just this, this power of determination, of always trying again. This, this process of, of trying, failing, asking forgiveness, trying again, actually trains us in the habits of the soul it cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to, to depend on the Holy Spirit. Uh, we learn on one hand that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments, and on the other hand, that we need not despair even in our worst moments, for our failures are forgiven. The only fatal thing is to give up entirely. Which seems to happen uh, all too often doesn't it? Uh, don't give up. That's a, that's, a, that's a pretty trite statement, isn't it? Don't give up. Don't give up, though. Um, get help. Get, you can't do it alone. I always say that, but you can't do it alone. What Jesus Christ has done is he saved you and made you part of a community, and so you're supposed to get help from your community, and you're supposed to remember what does he call the church, the community? He calls her the bride of Christ. And so I think that's one of the most beautiful things you can say to somebody who's a very sexually broken people. As Jesus Christ has made you, he's, he's brought you in and made you part of his spotless, white, beautiful, virgin bride. That's how he sees you now that's why you make every effort to, to walk in, in chastity and purity. And then it just makes sense during Advent to remember this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He will carry it on. The, the good work he started in you, he will carry it on to completion until the day of his second Advent, until the day he returns. As we prepare to come to the table, there's one more thing I do want to say in, in preparation for it. It was a sermon that I preached several years ago, I think, on slavery in Luke chapter 17. I thought it was 
it just is right for us to think about this as we come to the table. In the Roman slave market in the first century, gypsum-covered placards were hung around the neck of slaves, and on those were recorded where they were from and what skills they possessed. And those same kind of placards, as far as I know, were also used in, in the southern slave market. Well, imagine that you were one of those. There you are, standing up on the platform in front of these large, gawking eyes of slavers, and you're witnessing the most surreal experience. People are bidding on you. They are, they are taking you know, auction bids on you like you're a piece of cattle. The auctioneer asks out, who will give me 20,000? And, and a mousy-looking man with glasses over there raises his hand. Who will give me 40,000? And another uh, beady-eye-looking guy raises his hand. It's interesting because slaves were, were always expensive. Even in the 1850s, I think I read that a slave in the southern United States cost the equivalent of $40,000. So there you are, surreal. You're being bedded on. And then all of a sudden, one of your, you see one of your best friends walk into, into the crowd. This is a, your friend who has the, the largest heart in the world and the tiniest wallet. Like they, they're terrible with money. They're, they're large-hearted, but they have nothing. They don't have two nickels to rub together. You're thinking, what is, what is he doing here? And the auctioneer cries out, uh, Who will give me 60,000? And it's your friend who raises their hand in the crowd. And you know that he doesn't have that kind of money. Uh, but he walks over to the auctioneer, and he's, he sets a bag of gold into his, his hand. And... The auctioneer, or the, the, they come up to you and they, they say, you're free to go. Some gruff voice calls from above you. And as they unlatch your chains, you walk towards your best friend. And, but what you see is happening is they're, they're putting chains around the arms of your best friend. And you say, what hap- what's going on here? And they tell you, he sold, he sold himself into slavery right before we began your auction. His only request is, was that he got to bid on the very next group of slaves following him. And what you probably realize is that that story is, is not a story of fiction. That the early Christians, some of the Christians in the first century, they did that very thing. They sold themselves into slavery in order to buy the freedom of other people. And why did they do that? They did that because they were following the way of their master. Jesus Christ bought us by by being enslaved for us. And I, that is the spirit that I want us to come to the table in, a grateful recognition of that. The next song that we have here is, it really reflects that. The, the whole process of Jesus being sold for us began at the first advent in his incarnation and was complete, so to speak, at, at, his, at, his, uh, at his cross. And, and both of those are, are found here in the fullness of grace.